Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like the Fab Faux, Steve Earle, Richard Thompson, John Schofield, Nels Klein, the Milk Carton Kids, and many more. This June, join the Wait Band, featuring members of the band and the Levon Helm Band with special guests including Jimmy Vivino, Bob Margolin, Lost Leaders, Chris O'Leary, Cindy Cashdollar, Stony Creek Band, Rob Fraboni, Larry Packer, and so many more at Camp Cripple Creek. This all-inclusive music vacation in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York promises to be a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience featuring performances, workshops, jams, comfortable lodging, and superb dining. Visit CampCrippleCreek.com slash Undermine to register today. That's CampCrippleCreek.com slash Undermine. Osiris. having fun before we press record we're having fun in the studio and uh we were laughing and i'm trying to not laugh right now but um anyway it's good to laugh but it's not good to laugh when you are the host of a podcast hello and welcome to episode 33 season four of the undermine podcast by osiris media i am your podcasty host tom marshall and we're in the thick of fish's fall tour 1997 the tour some people consider their best ever And I don't know yet if I'm in that camp, but there have been some pretty compelling arguments for it, for it on these podcast episodes. And I forget if my co-host and Osiris Kingpin, RJB, is one of those people who makes the fall 97 peak tour claim. What say you, sir? Hello, Thomas. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that it is the peak of the era which I guess is sort of qualifying and maybe not fair. That's unfair. I think it's probably the peak of of everything, but it's certainly the peak of the era of 1.0 fish. Okay. All right. Good enough. 
Actually, it is the peak of fish. There it is. But there might be another one like next week. <laughs> next peak. Next peak. <laughs> All right. So um, what, are we, what are we doing today? I don't think so. Nothing. I think this is practice. This is a test run. Uh, <laughs> so we're we're in the middle of fall 97. We're stopping in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, one of my favorite towns. I've, I spent a lot of time there, more in Salem than Winston. But it's, uh, it's 11, 23, 97. It's a Sunday night. It was a crazy show. We have a return guest to help us go through this show. And um, as we always say, if you enjoy what we're doing and you want to support Osiris, check out osirispod.com slash premium to check out our new premium offering. You can get bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and a lot more. And we know all of you have memories and you're sharing them with us from these Fall 97 shows. Send us a video clip on social media, 60 seconds, post it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, tag Osiris Pod, tell us about one of one of these shows or, or many of these shows, and we're going to choose someone who's going to win a special prize from Tom Marshall. Okay, Tom, who is our guest? Um, okay, I am rummaging around in my attic for the special prize that you guys are going to win, but uh, that's for later. Today, we have a guest named... Brian Brinkman, you may recognize his name because he's an executive producer of Undermine, but he's also a longtime Osiris podcaster in his own right. And also because he was just here, a guest on our show earlier this month, talking about the Amsterdam show in February of 97. Brian is our secret weapon, an expert fish analyst we deploy only in emergencies. And I feel if this isn't an actual emergency, we could turn it into one. Please look who's in the freezer as I open the vault. Brian Brinkman. Tom, Hi, Brian. <laughs> RJ, how are you guys? We are hey. doing fantastic. Wonderfully. Wonderfully Fantastically. Fantastic. Ah, there you go. You used an adverb and, and I, I upped my game. Correct ad- form. Very but, well. Very yes. Good. You got an adverb when, you, when, when you're supposed to. Um, Brian, welcome back, my friend. Fish, now here in the middle of fall tour. Back in America since we saw you last. Um, and they just played two nights, Friday and Saturday, at Hampton Coliseum and blew the roof off the place by every account. Here they are the next day, November 23rd, 1997. It's a Sunday in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Never miss a Sunday show. And they don't seem tired at all from Hampton where there's no way anyone got any sleep. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think that they show they showcase how energized and how locked in they continue to be by releasing this as the third part of that box set. I think most people in the years leading up to the 2011 release would have thought we're just going to at some point get 1121 and 112297, but I think that they knew both that this is all one weekend, but that there's a lot of themes that are carried over and expanded upon. And in some cases, I think really interestingly fought against from the successes of Hampton as this band is kind of at this point now 10 months since we last talked about 217.97. Obviously, you guys have talked about other 97 shows, but that band that was having so much fun and had discovered this new style and this new sound has been growing within that and perfecting that over the course of spring, summer, and now here we are in the fall and they're kind of able to do anything and and anything really, really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, this is like, uh, I mean, we can talk about set one, but the, the evolution of the sound is, you know, the tour started 10 days before this, but 
just in the first set, you hear Black Eyed Katie. The whole sound is totally different than the first version. There's four of these versions. There's four of these four versions of the song in 10 days. But this is like a totally different take on it. There's really no funky aspect to it at all. It's just like a really intense rock peak, which I feel like we hear throughout here, throughout this. But I don't know, as the tour goes on, as we're looking really closely at it, you see these kind of like waves um, over the course of of the tour, you know? Yeah, and can I say something slightly controversial so yep. early on in the podcast? Um, so I love Fall 1997. It is one of, if not my favorite fish tour of all time. I think it is one of, if not the greatest fish tours of all time. We can get into the nuances in a different podcast where we break down tour by tour, but it's incredible. Every time I listen to it, you immediately know you're in Fall 1997. You hear this band that is equal parts arrogant and curious and creative and surrender into the flow. Um, to me, Fall 97 is always thought of as this funk tour. To me, the best parts of Fall 97 almost have nothing to do with funk. And this show kind of exemplifies that. And you talk about it immediately in that Black Eyed Katie. That's a funk riff that they kind of wrote during soundcheck, brought to the stage, would later turn into MoMA dance. But this version doesn't sound like the version the night before in Hampton, which was very funky, very gooey, a lot of early moment dances are very dance heavy. This is a rock approach to it. And this is like the band taking this connected way that they've been playing vis-a-vis -vis funk and applying their rock and roll, their love for like arena rock to it. It's it's so interesting to listen to. That was uh it wasn't controversial enough take to to turn this to the level of emergency, as I alluded to <laughs> uh, earlier in the show. But it is controversial, right? Because it's it, it, we're, everyone's talking about funk, and here we have a rock show. I guess you'd say um, the night before in Hampton, and and RJ alluded to this. Um, they also played Black Eyed Katie, um, and you know they played it a lot. I guess playing two songs in a row isn't too common in Fish, and later in Fish when they now have like so many songs to choose from, I think it's pretty rare. Uh, what other songs did they commonly play in consecutive shows? So I went back and looked at this. We were, we were talking prior to recording. I went through some like the big fish songs to look at the last time there was a repeated version. And, and the majority of them, as you would assume, happened before 1997. For example, ACDC Bag's last repeat performance was 27 to 28, 1991. Slave to the Traffic Lights was 220 to 224, 1988. After 1997, this became an incredibly rare experience. There's, I think, five or six songs that have been repeated from one show to the next, just to give you kind of what those look like. You enjoy myself. And this is taking out like one was played on the last date of the tour and then was played the first date of the next tour or was played at the end of a tour and then was played in the holiday run, so on and so forth. These are just one show, one show. Uh, you Enjoy Myself, July 26th to July 28th, 98. Antelope and Chalk Dust Torture were both played on July 14th, 2013. And then on July 16th, 2013, Golgi was played on November 29th to December 2nd, 09. Bathtub Gin, June 12th to June 14th, 2011. Tweezer, June 24th to June 28th, 2012. And then Down With Disease, October 22nd and October 23rd, 2010. Those are the last versions wow. post-1997 of repeats one night to the other. 
Oh, wow. Well, thank you for delving so deeply into it, Brian. Uh, the one that I guessed, I think, wasn't even on your list, and that was Character Zero. Because I remember during this tour, um, you know, that came out of the gates like a racehorse, that song. But then they played it and played it and played it and played it kind of like Caspian and and it kind of got on a few people's uh not favorite song you know <laughs> list for that reason and i thought you were going to say that character zero was played repetitively uh back to back but i guess it never made that list well actually the last repeat version was november 23rd to november 26 97 so oh. still mm -hmm. in 1997 but yeah that was it's right at this point that we're talking about that they would repeat that song because the next version is like a 20 minute version it yeah. opens the second set it's mind blowing but to your point it's interesting like you can almost think of this year and this tour in some senses like 1994, where they were pushing very specific songs. You know, 1994 got ragged on at, at the time because it's so hoist heavy and all these hoist songs that the band's really trying to push because they're consciously trying to push this album for the first time. Um, you get that here in 1997 because they cast a bunch of songs off in February, wrote all these new songs, and then these new songs fit this style perfectly and they're trying to figure out how do these new songs pick up and carry the weight that old, you know, heavy jam vehicles and heavy hitters, your mics, your, you enjoy myself, your stashes. How do we have new songs kind of carry the weight for our creativity going forward? And so as a result, you get a lot of repeats, which we even see that stuff happen today. You know, there was like the Fuego tour of 2014, where wherever yeah. you saw fish, you were going to see a Fuego at one stop. And by the end of the tour, it almost became a joke. And there was the, Oprah Winfrey, you get a car, you get a car, uh, <laughs> gift that was going around. <laughs> you get a fuego. Yeah, Brian, <laughs> Brian, we have to, we can stop talking about Black Eyed Katie soon, but I want to ask you because we, you know, the yesterday people heard the, the night two Hampton, um, show. And then this was like, as you guys been saying two in a row, but this, this song, you know, it kind of like disappeared obviously, or, or melded into Moba dance at the end of the year. But these sort of, I don't know, six versions on on this Fall 97 tour, I know you like to look for these or see these patterns in, in Fish. Do you, I feel like they sort of mirror the the tour. Like this is sort of like a dark and dark and stormy period of the tour where it's just like kind of rock and roll. And then by the by the a couple shows later, it kind of goes back to being a, a kind of a funk vehicle. Um what do you think like what what role did this song play in the in the tour. I feel like this song, like I remember first reading about this song before I ever heard about it in like the farmer's almanac or the fish companion or something like that. And the way it was described was the entire sound fish was going after was coalesced into a single song. And I think to your point, like I said this earlier that to me, the most interesting aspect of this tour has nothing to do with the funk. It's the ambient jamming and stash in Las Vegas or the simple and dog face boy Mike song segment in 12 97. It's this bathtub gin that's so aggressive and you hear a song like black eyed Katie kind of mold and, 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 and evolve with the tour and with their inspirations. You know, I think you said it really well, where they're at in the tour, you hear it through a song like this. You also hear it through Ghost. You know, you think about that Denver version 
that's so expansive and has all these different ideas, but ultimately turns into a rock peak. But then you go forward five days from here to Worcester and it's suddenly a funk song again. And it's, it's, you know, and you go three weeks later and it's going into Johnny B. Good. And like, it's a song that kind of showcases along with Black Eyed Katie, how the band is feeling night to night. They're all, regardless of the style they're playing in, they're fully connected. And so they can use these songs as a way to kind of mirror how are they feeling more? Is it slightly more aggressive tonight? Um, are they leaning into Hendrix more? Are they leaning into James Brown more? And it's kind of that like pass back and forth between those 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 influences um, along with the way that the band is peaking at the time. I love the analysis, Brian. It's always spot on. And it's like kind of like, you know, you know more than the rest of us. And yet you just watch and listen just like us. And, 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 you know, it's incredible. Uh, some of the inferences you can draw that are to me spot on. Um, this stash, you mentioned it and you can't talk about set one of this show without mentioning it a little bit more. It's almost too much. It's like, it's wonderful and then chaotic. And, and at times it's, it's noise. It's like Trey just sort of like guitar practice, like noodling weird fusion riffs on top of this like stormy ocean but then like halfway into the song they get into that weird pulsing rhythm which i love that's my favorite part of the song it's like 10 minutes in and then it blossoms into some incredible stuff And then they skip the regular, maybe so, maybe not ending and just go right into NICU. Um, I don't know if I have a question really, uh, apart from, I guess, is this the jam of the show? I think it's the jam I enjoy the most. I think, you know, we obviously have to touch on bathtub gin and, you know, just how, how aggressive and long that is. But I think you're right. Like I was thinking about it. This show feels like, like the distant cousin of summer 1995 fish where they're really trying to experiment with music during this show. And they, they didn't necessarily do this in the previous two nights in Hampton. So I kind of wonder if it's just changing locations or if it's just like something in the water or something in the air, but they sound like they're channeling this band that went on stage every night with a goal of challenging their audience and testing their audience and being like, can you follow us? Like, are you willing to follow us as deep as we're going to go musically? And <laughs> it's going to get weird. It's going to get noisy. You're not going to like all of it, but like, trust <laughs> us. It, it also reminds me of like, there's a quote from page in the it documentary, uh, where he's talking about the 38 minute, 46 days that they play there. And he talks about, there's a segment of music that gets so beautiful and so peaceful and so calm, like 20 minutes into that. 
And he talks about how without challenging themselves and diving completely off the deep end, you never find that music. Mm. And that music doesn't exist unless you work through all these battles. I think to your point about the stash, like it showcases this band from two years earlier that still exists. That's like, this may fail completely. And we may, after 17 minutes, not find something and just abandon it. But instead they find this like three minute segment of music that kind of foreshadows the music that they would play towards the end of the decade, like that millennial uh, hyper groove hypnotic sound that you would get going into big Cypress. It's like you hear that band being bridged with summer 95. Um, I don't know if you guys heard that in the stash, but I kept thinking about that while listening back to it. Yeah. You said, you said my keywords, hyper groove, hypnotic. <laughs> <laughs> Those are, that's Tom's username on a lot of message boards. Um, it is the, the I think the the other aspect of it is just the like they weren't analyzing stuff, yeah. Right in, in this tour, we talked about that a couple episodes ago, but that allows them or or forces them, depending on how you look at it, to like have those conversations within the the music, you know, and like kind of just push the everyone's pushing in different directions sometimes, and then it it ends up in this in this really really unique place. So it's really. Hey. Awesome, I, one. It's my job as a host to say it's time for a break and we hey. will be we will be back with no set way. two after a quick word from our sponsors if RJ lets me get through Don't this do sentence. Don't do it. <laughs> hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, DistroKid. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. And we are back. Our guest today is Brian Brinkman, and we are plunging into set two of November 23rd, 1997, which was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Go, RJ. So, Brian, let's talk about set two. Again, we're kind of diverging from the funk in this show. I think the the gin opener has similar 
vibes to the Black Eyed Katie in that it's just hard driving, it's rocking, and um, man, it's a it's a pretty cool it's a pretty cool jam. But it but it does not represent, I think, what most people think about when they think about this tour. No, I feel like the closest corollaries to this jam are the Wolfman's Brothers from Champagne on eleven nineteen, as well as the one from Worcester on eleven thirty, which. I think pissed a lot of fans off because it's basically like 12 minutes of one riff that just gets louder and quieter and louder and quieter. I love it. Um, this gin is not really like easy to listen to. Like I listened to the Haley's from 1122 and this back to back and it sh- like shocked me how different the band sounds like that. Haley's to make a sports analogy that Haley's is like a modern basketball team where you have like shooters out past the three point line. So you have all this space and guys can drive and cut and pass and you get an open shooter and it's beautiful. And like the entire jam is as if it was composed, every single section just makes sense and everyone has just enough time to breathe and kind of exhale and then move on to the next thing. And it's 24 perfect, perfect minutes and this gin is like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's just like, they're just like throwing ideas and just seeing what happens. I mean, I don't know if it's good music or if it's just like the band, like blowing off some steam. I, I don't really care. I really like it. It's just, it's, it's so aggressive for so long. And to me, this is them leaning into you know, we can play as loud as Led Zeppelin right now in an arena. Trey can play as fast and aggressively as Jimi Hendrix, but it's as evil and demented as King Crimson. Like it's all these styles of music that the band has listened to and is in their DNA, all just being poured out over a 30 minute jam that I don't think could have been planned in any sort of way. It's just like, just go and we won't stop until we stop. Yeah, 30 minutes goes by quickly in this, I think. I mean, you know, sometimes it's like hard to to hang out there for 30 minutes, but this one goes by pretty quickly. It's it's pretty wild. Um and then they, you know, into down with disease, which is uh, 10 or 12 minutes and then the, the low rider is is pretty fun. I'm not like I, I've said this on other shows, like I'm not really one for the thematic cover going in and out of songs, but this is actually I feel like the lowrider is really fun. There's like it's, it's pretty long and it gets into a groove. It's not just like a a tease that they find themselves in. I'm on the same page with you, but I do like it here, kind of like you. I it it fits there. If there was ever a point where fish was going to sound like 
you know, they, they could play a song like Lowrider and like they existed in the mid 1970s. It's 1997. I mean, and it's funny to to land in something like that after this kind of disjointed bathtub gin that I do think they were like, they were all just in that bathtub gin, like just kind of messing with their effects. And there was like a lot of different layers, but it, it didn't, it didn't really like smooth out as much as, as some of the other jams, but now they get into this low rider. It's just so simple. And it it's, it's like a little bit of a break, but it still keeps things moving. Um, this out of those three shows that that came out of this, you know, sort of box set, um, this is the show I listened to the least. But I wonder if I wonder how you think it 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 ranks compared to the other two. Like if you take these three as a kind of Friday, Saturday, Sunday show, like where 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 would you put this one? I think I would put it at the third. Um, I, I honestly I don't think this is one of the great fall 97 shows um overall i just think you're dealing with a lot of really really great shows in in the tour for me the 1121 set two is one of my favorite sets of the entire tour i think it flows perfectly and the haley's obviously the mike song from 1122 it might be my favorite mike song ever outside of 1995 um you know i again i was i was really puzzled when they released this along with the Hampton shows, but I think it does a nice job thematically of both rounding out those two shows while also showcasing how much diversity is. I mean, you think about three set two openers being that ghost, that Haley's, and then this gin, it's kind of the three sides of fall 1997 in a lot of cases. Um, I also think, and I don't know how, how, how deep we want to go on this, but like, you do see this band at this point in time moving from Mike's, Yem, Tweezers, Stash, Bowie as like the jam vehicles that guided them from 1992 to 1995 to now Gin, Ghost, Wolfman's, Down with Disease, even a song like Twist that's on like the periphery of this show, but is going to play a huge role the island tour is going to have an amazing japan 2000 performance you know you just are starting to see the band move away from what was the bedrock of exploration and like this is what's going to be your show highlight when you walk away we start playing mike's song that is going to be the song you're going to walk away with to now newer songs are being introduced as the songs will kind of carry the weight which is as we think about this tour 25 years later you know, you can go through 2.0 where Piper becomes a huge jam vehicle and then 3.0 where songs like Light 
later everything's right become yeah. huge jam vehicles and set your soul free and you know we see the band starting around this point to abandon those earlier songs as the you know the hallmark of a show and start to say what is what are the next songs that are going to carry us and, and how are these next songs going to help us evolve yep and just to put the sort of period at the end of a sentence that i opened up a long time ago uh when we were studying early 90s um it seemed like every early 90s show depended on a mics or a tweezer and then like maybe ghost or um wolfman's possibly started dominating set lists around this tour and then this show doesn't have tweezer mics or ghost and uh, i think you just kind of answered that question so um uh, uh yeah it's just good to point out that that fish was able to begin turning any song into the you know the atlas that's carrying the the weight of the world <laughs> absolutely and you're going to see that throughout this tour as a i mean this tour is only 10 days old at this point in time and has three weeks left to it and you're going to start to see additional songs start to carry the weight and when we move into the island tour you know there's obviously a great mike song there's a great yem there's a great tweezer but there's a lot of other songs that are a part of that celebrated four-night run and beyond. And that's you're just seeing this band kind of change and evolve in real time here while also being at a peak period. And that's such a rare thing to like be that successful. And night to night, you're playing great shows and great jams, but you're also evolving on kind of a macro scale in ways that will impact you 20, 25 years later. Um you know, I don't know. It's just it's just mind blowing to think about. So okay, Tom. Well, first of all, I just want to say I, I've only seen Bold as Love three times, and I just really want them to keep playing it. Um, it's one of my favorite covers. Page is so good on it. It's just like I don't know. I just think they should play it more. Agree. No, no, no arguments. No argument. Okay. Tom, there's a there's a really great Julius encore. There's there's a bunch in this tour. There's actually several, including a couple other shows that I was at. And they just really, like, it was just a chance for Trey to just kind of, like, shred um, at, at the end. And it made me think there, you know, this song is... And also Fishman yells the whole time while Trey's, <laughs> while Trey's soloing. It just, just eggs them on, and they just keep, like, put it. It's just, it's a really good version. But is this, are the lyrics of this song a direct historical reenactment of the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 B.C.? Because I think it probably went down exactly as 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 the song is performed. And simple answer: yes, the direct historical reenactment. Uh, you know who called me out on this? Um, it was a brand new album, just came out, and um, John Popper. This was this was actually up at, in Bearsville. Fish must have been working on, or maybe working on mixing. Anyway, he had listened to Hoist. I forget what Fish was working on at the time. Or Anyway, he drove up in a Jeep, and he was playing Hoist, and he was playing Julius. And he called me out. He said, um, they gave it to me, but you really don't, but I really don't want it. I came out on top by the luck of the draw. He, he said, that's nothing like Caesar. He said, Caesar wanted it. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I just kind of wrote it. Like, you know, you're right. Maybe I should pay more attention to actual history if I'm using a historical person. So uh, I just anyways. feel like you were channeling the like first two years of the Clinton presidency and the rising <laughs> contract with America and the looming 94 midterms. That's, 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 I, I, I interpret it as you taking 44 
BC and putting it in 1994 America. Thank you. I'm going to go with that from now on. And <laughs> John Popper, I hope you're listening. That's the answer. That's the answer. <laughs> um, Brian, uh, I think I know that the answer to this, however, I'm going to give you another chance to to tell us whether these three shows, the two Hamptons and this Winston-Salem, are they the peak of the Fall 97 short tour? I'm going to say it's a peak. And the reason I say that is I think that if you take 1117 through 1123, you have this one segment that crosses the country is these five days. But then I think if you go with from Philly to Dayton, you get another peak. And then if you fast forward, you get the New Year's run. That's another peak, which is not the tour, but is like this late 1997. I think that it's it's one of the things that when you start to like look at the nuts and bolts and the stats of this overall tour, one of the things that this tour has that most tours don't have. Most tours have like a great stretch and then some periphery that's really interesting that like all leads up to this is why X is a great tour. This tour does something that's very rare where it peaks in a distinct style. And this is not to take anything away from Hartford and Worcester. I think those are excellent, excellent shows. But it also it all, almost feels like they're kind of relying on old tricks. And then from what I hear in Philadelphia, especially that second set, they uncover and they unlock something new, which takes them through the next weekend in um, both Auburn Hills, Michigan, as well as Dayton. And and there's just music that's played there that is foreshadowing where this band is going and is also showcasing just how high of a high they're on. Yeah. So sorry to compl- complicate your your simple question. Oh yeah, it was a yes no answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good it's a good point though. It's also like different, like these are three, five, four or five song second sets in a row, you know. Yeah. Whereas like later in the tour, you get a little, you get more songs, you get like a little more going on in the second set. Um, but I like, I like your, I like the way you're looking at it. Always great can details. I, Always great details. Can I ask you guys a question? Uh, yes. Oh, here we go. All right. Just very simple. You, you guys are going through every single show. And, and at this point, I'm guessing you're probably, as we're recording a few weeks ahead of like the actual date that we're on. Are you guys hearing fall 97 in a new way at all and if so how so i i am because now i'm hearing it all and i only saw maybe three or four shows so and and as you guys know i think both of you know my memory isn't i I don't go back and listen to shows much so this has been an incredible eye-opening experience i'm i'm willing to sit back and kind of let you guys guide me into the really good shows and really good sets and I got to say favorite right now, just because probably because it's very recent are the two Hamptons. And I actually had, I had that disc set, the, uh, what was it called? Uh, I was just called Fall 90s. Winston Salem 97. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was in my car for a while. So, um, anyway, I I hope I answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always listen to the shows that I was at, which are like, you know, four or five of them, at the in December, like usually on the date and listening to the whole tour, I, I think the thing that I'm hearing the most is just the variety of styles. Like I, I love the Hampton shows, but 
and I'm, it's like, I've listened to these shows so many times, so it shouldn't be surprising, but listening to them all in a row, you hear this evolution of like, like we talked about earlier, like deep funk to like explosive rock to also like really contemplative, beautiful space that I think is, is always kind of secondary to what we think about when we think about the tour. So it's really fun to go through every show um, and, and hearing it in different ways. I can't wait to listen to some of these other ones because I think they're going to think we're going to keep hearing new things, you know? Agreed. Thank you, Brian, so much. Thank you, RJ. And that's it for us today. Um, thanks to all you listeners and thanks to the Osiris team, especially Eric Limarenko and Matt Dwyer, who are making all of this work from behind the scenes. And a quick shout out to Cash or Trade, the world's only social network where fans buy, sell, and trade tickets at face value. Check them out at cashertrade.org. Please remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. Goodbye, and please remember to blaze on. Osiris. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.